0: Stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.
1: When you think of spree killings, mass murders, mass shootings, sadly as of late, your first thought may be just another day in the news. These have become far too frequent and occurrence south of the border. And while they're significantly more rare in Canada, they still do happen here. It's a phenomenon that we've had to accept. In 1966, however, these sorts of violent events weren't nearly as common. There wasn't even a label for it. No mass shooters, no serial killers. Back then, there were just bad people doing bad things, plain and simple. If something of this magnitude did happen, it was such an anomaly that it was hard to forget the name of the shooter or their victims unlike today. So when Canada's first ever spree killer attacked the streets of Windsor on June 25, 1966, it was stunning nationwide. Matthew Charles Lamb was born in Windsor on January 5, 1948 and developed violent tendencies at a very early age. He also had a growing obsession with guns. By the time he was 16, he'd already found himself in Kingston Penitentiary. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, the Windsor spree killer from horrific to surreal. Your host is Haley Cheng.
2: I have a personal uh, interest in this case. The first person to die uh, by a shotgun blast, point blank shotgun blast on Ford Boulevard in Windsor here uh, was Ia Tchaikovsky, who was my first teen, pre-teen crush. She was my next-door neighbor, and I, I was 12 and she was 19. I just had this mad crush on her, and when she was killed, it just really affected me.
0: That's Will Toffin, author of the book Watching the Devil Dance how a spree killer slipped through the cracks of the criminal justice system. So what makes a spree killer different in the spectrum of murderers is that they are defined as a person who commits two or more murders without a cooling-off period, therefore making it a spree. It doesn't happen often in Canada, and when it does, it sends the community into a state of shock. In 1966, it had never happened before. So imagine the shock of hearing that an entirely new criminal category had been created in your own backyard. The Windsor community is all too familiar with this as the home of Matthew Charles Lamb, the man who horrified the nation as Canada's first spree killer. In
2: 1966, in June of 1966, it turned out that this particular killer, Matthew Charles Lamb, was a prototype. For the type of of killers we would see uh, early in the 80s, we had a rash. And of course, we see now all the time. And these are the ones they tend to be, not always, but typically young men, uh, gun fixations, a lot of anger issues, usually psychopathic or um, maladaptive personality disorders.
0: It's an age old question. Are mass killers born or made? Is it nature or nurture? Well, Matthew Lamb did have a very rough upbringing, but Will says that this was not abnormal for the time.
2: At the time of the the killings, he was 18 years old. He was born in Windsor in 1948, um, so it's all in the book. But of course, he had he had a very uh, dysfunctional childhood, but not not really unusual. I mean, it was not uh, it was not unusual for the time period, especially in you know in a, a working class uh, a working class family. Uh, split up his parents. He never knew his father who died somewhere in the state shortly after Matthew Land was born in some uh, criminal manner. Uh, his mother uh, she had no attachment to the boy. She would come and maybe see him one every th- three years or so pop in. Matthew Lamb never, he never grew any of those bonding attachments to any specific individual, which did not help that, pers- that personality disorder he had. Um, yeah, he had a, he had a rough childhood, but he was also a great he was a great boy. He had an IQ of one twenty six, which is a one full standard deviation above. I mean, he's not a genius, but he is above average, and and he was very uh, very good manipulator. He was very he would be very impressive to certain people, but he was very scary too. He had sadistic proclivities from very young age. Uh, torturing, you know, some torturing his relatives.
0: His sadistic upbringing continued into his teens when he was eventually arrested and sentenced to two years in Kingston Penitentiary. And while it might seem like a harsh sentence for a teenager, it was already clear that he was headed down a pretty violent path.
2: The story that always haunted me, you know, because it was such a unique crime at the time. So, you know, and not only that, but even the killers, it's his post-offense, it was his post-offense history that really was astounding. Matthew Lamb had just been released 17 days prior from Kingston Federal Penitentiary uh, for for shooting, for setting up an ambush, breaking into a, a, a sporting gun store and setting up an ambush on Christmas Eve, um, uh, late on Christmas Eve. He attended a party. He was. Um, they had skating outdoors, and it was a big event. They did every year. They gave guys a beer or two, not enough to make them drunk, just enough to make them feel men. They told dirty jokes, and then they all went home to their respective families. Matthew Lamb stayed behind. He committed. He uh, set up an ambush. He broke into the place, stole a gun, needed for the police to show up, and then opened fire. The police returned fire. Matthew Lamb gave up. Now this is when he just turned 16. And then he's sentenced to Kingston Federal Penitentiary. Back then you could send a sixteen year old to a federal penitentiary if the crime uh, if the crime warranted, him. You can't today with the Young Offenders Act. So um, he was sent for two years to Kingston. He only did fourteen months, and even though when they released him the doctors there were convinced he was a high recidivist risk that he would probably commit another crime, they released him anyway.
0: The doctors weren't wrong as it turned out. Releasing him turned out to be a huge mistake.
2: And so, after 17 days, he was staying with his uncle, living with his uncle and his and his uh, two nef- his nephew and niece. And Matthew learned that Saturday he had gotten a part time job as part of his parole as a woodworker. He hated it. It just because he just he was his personality type was not the type that would could really. He was smart enough to do the work, no doubt. But he couldn't settle down. And he just could not apply himself to do anything progressive, or anything positive for any period of time. He he lived the fantasies of gunfire and gunplay and war, and very immature in that way. But anyway, on 10 o'clock that night, he put the kids to bed. He had babysat for his uncle, and his uncle and his aunt were out somewhere, and he was watching their two young children put them to bed, and he had drank about eight beers. He watched a John Wayne, a violent John Wayne Western he went to bed, woke up, and you got to understand too. It was one of the hottest nights of the year. He wasn't drunk, but and he just took his uncle's shotgun, filled his pockets with all the ammunition he could, took the shotgun, walked outside, and he didn't go fifty yards before, uh, like, uh just to give you the, the killings themselves. A quick anniversary. There was a party going on, a twenty fifth wedding anniversary party, just a few doors down from where he lived with his uncle. And there was a lot of people there that were celebrating the wedding anniversary music. So that attracted his attention. And they were his real targets at night. There was about 25 people at this garage party. And just and as he was just like a like a, like a lion watching a herd of gazelles looking for the weak one, he was standing there with a shotgun. Ford Boulevard was very dark at night, and he's he's deciding what his next move is going to be. When out of the blue, and again, I say it's very dark. Out of the blue walks, these six people, Edith Tchaikovsky and her five friends. Well, that upsets Matthew Lamb's plans to attack this party. And he wheels left. And before he immediately says, hands up, before anyone can respond, at point blank range, he shoots Edith Tchaikovsky with a shotgun blast direct in the stomach, just blew her apart. Uh, she had tried to walk around him, apparently. She had just she assumed, probably likely assumed he was someone from the party, because everyone, they came out of the dark and they looked, they could see the music was going, everything was, it was a happy, it was a jovial uh, the surrounding uh, environment. So she assumed he was probably just some idiot playing a game and went to walk around him and he shot her.
0: Edith was Lamb's first victim, but he wasn't done there. Sadly, he still had a pocket full of shotgun shells that he had full intention of using.
2: And the other five, uh, everyone just stopped and didn't understand the really process what was happening. And, and for about well, 20 seconds, nobody said a word. And then Matthew Graham again repeated, hands up. Well, Andrew Roelock, who was a, a university engineering student and a Windsor and a pro, uh, pro hockey player in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the minor leagues, threw his hands in the air. To give up, he obviously understood the, he the situation. I go into each individual and how they perceived the situation at the time. Those twenty seconds could have been twenty years. Is that's how long it seemed to last. But when he said hands up the second time, he Andrew Willock threw up his hands. Uh, he then de- missed. He then redirected his aim, Matthew Lamb, and then he fires, uh, shooting Andrew Wallach in the abdomen. Uh, he also hitting because now the shells, the shell, the shotgun shell, the pellets, are time to disperse. About two meters away, he also hits uh, Ken Tchaikovsky in the arm and in the hip. Uh, so he's shot three people. After the second shot, when uh, Andrew Willock goes down, Ken goes down, um, Matthew Lamb bolts across the street. Everyone runs. Matthew Lamb bolts across the street. And a girl, woman across the street, Grace Dunlop, who was only 19 years old at the time, she, she, she heard the shots. And she, she knew there was a party going on across the street, but she thought it sounded odd. She flicked, she walked down her stairs to where her, uh, her side door going to the basement meets her driveway, is leveled with the driveway. So she flicks on the light, and as soon as she flicks on the light, Matthew Lamb happened to be running up her driveway, running away from the carnage he left across the street.
0: At the end of the day, there were four victims. Both Edith Tchaikovsky and Andrew Woolock died from their wounds. Kenneth Tchaikovsky and Grace Dunlop survived. As bad as this seems, there were worse scenarios out there.
2: It could have been much, much worse had had Edith Chikonsky, the girl, and her five uh, associates not stepped out from the dark on the, si- on the sidewalk into where that party, the garage party, was taking place into that area. He would have attacked that garage party. And like some of the participants, one of the survivors says they have no doubt at least 20 people would have been killed that night.
0: These 20 people at the party avoided death. But they weren't alone. Two LaHue boys also managed to escape unscathed. When
2: Matthew Lamb first walked out of the house with the shotgun and his pockets filled with ammunition, the first he only walked maybe 30 meters, and he walked to um, the, the LaHue in front of the LaHue house where two boys, um, two young boys, six and eight years old, brothers, were playing in the front yard because their parents were in the adjoining garden. Entertaining some 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 friends, but he walked out with the shotgun. And the first people he came upon were these two young boys, six and eight years old. Now, the six-year-old Jack LeHue, recognized Matthew Lamb right off the bat because he played with the with the children uh, where uh, where, uh, uh, where Matthew Lamb was staying at, at his uncle's home with the two young children. Matthew Lamb was babysitting that night, his niece and nephew. They used to play with this, the LaHue boys. Um, Jack and his brother, and Jack recognized him immediately, but they thought when he first Matthew Lamb was walking towards him, they thought he was carrying, they didn't realize it was a gun, they thought he had a bat or a stick, and then he came right up to Jack LeHue, six-year-old Jack LeHue, who was walking the sidewalk and just staring at him, and first thing, Jack looked at Matt, he realized it was a gun, but being six years old, he didn't really understand the possible implications of that, he said, hi, Uncle Matt, and 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 I guess that shook Matt, Matt Lamb a bit. Matt Lamb just let out a growl or a sneering growl, and it scared the boy. But the boy didn't move because he was six. And again, you know, when you're that young, you don't really understand the situation yet. Lamb moved around and He did. He did. He left. Whether he recognized the young boy as his nephew's best friend, um, it, it's, it's difficult to say. But I think when he said "Hi, Uncle Matt," Matt Lamb must have recognized who that boy who he was. Or he just wasn't interested in killing the boy. I don't. Nobody knows. But he walked around the boy, walked about another 10 meters, and then stopped. And then was planning to attack that garage party when those six people, uh, pedestrians, walked out, and uh, and forced him to change, to improvise, and change his plans.
0: The spree killings were horrific. But as information started coming out about the case. It started to seem like his previous arrests foreshadowed what he was truly planning on that June
2: night. He ran a couple of blocks away, and then he did. He repeated the same thing he had done two years previously, which got him put in prison in the in the first place. He set up an ambush. He walked up to this woman's after he'd shot all these people. He ran over two blocks. He walked up to this woman's uh, door. It was again. It was it was very hot. Nobody had air conditioning, so they just screen doors open, and he banged on the door. And this. This woman uh, came to the door, and what would you like? She sees he has a gun. She finds it strange. She says, I'm going to shoot you. So she immediately tries to shut the door. He forces his way in behind her, yet he just stands in the doorway, never says another word, just like surveying, surveying the room, and she decided to bluff him. She couldn't figure out what this kid wanted. Even though he threatened to kill her, she suspected he wasn't going to carry out for some reason, she didn't think he was going to carry it out, but she, she was scared. So she called, she tried to bluff a man. her husband was asleep in the back room, and she called him and said, you know, said, Forrest, uh, there's a guy here with a gun, a kid here with a gun. Could you bring out your gun and call the police? Yeah, it didn't affect Matthew Lamb at all. He didn't, that didn't scare him. He waited around for a couple minutes longer, then finally he just moseyed off, and he walked in behind her backyard, where instead of going back out to the street and the way he came, he walked towards her backyard, and as the crime scene the next day would indicate, he set up an ambush.
0: The ambush was set up for the incoming police. He'd given himself a spot with a slight lift in the ground for cover, as well as a perfect escape route in a nearby field. The police found the murder weapon and shotgun shells placed next to it for easy reloading, a gut-wrenching discovery for the police, who very well could have been Lamb's next victim's.
2: He would assume that she would then, when once he left the house after threatening to kill her, she would likely immediately call the police. And the thing that they were just two blocks over, they would come screaming over. They would come you know the cars would come right up her driveway. They'd get out of the car to approach to go up her porch, and Matthew Lamb would be lying there in the dark, shotgun shells set up with defensive cover, and he would have picked them off like fish in a barrel. And uh, unfortunately, I, I mean fortunately, she never made that call. She waited because they were, she didn't want to wake her husband. They were going on their yearly vacation. And everybody who worked in uh, factories in those days knew that that two weeks was really appreciated. So she thought she'd tell him the next morning and ra- not rather than wake him. So she never placed a call to the police. So Lamb obviously got bored waiting and eventually made his way back home. Uh, so, so But had she placed that call, there's no doubt. There would have been more killings and there would have been police officers who, as, I, as it, it, it makes clear in the book, had always been Matthew Lamb's primary targets. And that is not unusual with young psychopathic, uh, these urban subcommando types. Police tend to be their primary targets because they represent authority authority figures that they have to submit to. And that's something their personality has a real difficult time handling. They answer to nobody.
0: You would think that after a crime of this scale, the perpetrator would run away or hide. But instead, Matthew Lamb just went back home as if nothing had happened.
2: He went back to his uncle's house and he immediately fell back into a deep sleep after shooting these people. And when his uncle did come home uh, about one one in the morning, of course, the street by that time was cordoned off. There were ambulances. There was press. The Detroit News had sent over a news team. So there was a lot of activity around the killing sites, the shooting sites. And Matthew Lamb had just walked right back and went right back into his house, right, walked right past the police, fell back to sleep. And when his uncle got, came home and saw that what, and heard what had happened, saw the activity, of course, his first thought was, "Jesus, I hope my nephew's not involved in something like this." And when he, the, the uncle went into the house, he saw shotgun, shotgun shells, empty box lying on the kitchen table, and then he knew. And he went, and he ran, he looked for a shotgun. It wasn't there in the closet, so he tentatively approached his nephew Matthew Lamb and. Said, you know, what do you know? Where's my shot? What do you know about this? And people killed. And Matthew Lamb was evasive at first, but eventually he just said, Yeah, he says, um, yeah, I probably shot some people. I'm really sorry for the inconvenience. And he fell back to sleep. So this uncle stayed up all night, uh, terrifying. Didn't know where the shotgun was, didn't know Lamb had it under the bed, whether he was testing his family loyalties. There were police right outside the door and then and, and hundreds of people gathered around. But he also had a family in his house, so he decided to wait till daybreak until he uh, contacted the police, and, and that's what he did. And he they set up uh, an ambush, or I should say an arrest, at Matthew Lamb's grandmother's house. Uh, the uncle had pre-planned to take Matthew to see his grandmother in in central Windsor here at 3 p.m. that Sunday. This is the day following the, the killings, so the mo- uncle had to go back to Matt Lamb, who was. Who knew that his uncle was the only one who could really tie him you know uh, to the killings uh, at the time. So he had to do the uncle had to do the acting job of his life, pretend that, you know, nothing's wrong until 3 PM when he they all arrived at uh, the grandmother's house, who wasn't aware of what was going on. The uncle uh, of course was his name was Hasketh, Stanley Hasketh. He had arranged for the police to knock on the door at three o'clock. He would open the door of the grandmother's house and the police would come in and arrest Matt Lamb for for their killings.
0: Matthew Lamb was arrested at 3 p.m. the next day at his grandmother's house. The news was an absolute shock for the people to hear around the country, as this was during a time that was considered the most peaceful era in Canadian and U.S. post-war history. But this crime really just became a precursor to worse shootings in North America. It was almost as if Matthew Lamb opened the floodgates to our modern crisis.
2: In Canada, uh, the homicide rate was 1.08 per every 100,000 citizens, which is extremely low. Yet that summer, in in, in just the summer of '66, we saw Matthew Lamb, southwestern Ontario, see Matthew, Matthew Lamb go on a killing spree in uh, June. Three weeks later, Richard Speck in Chicago, just about 300 miles from Windsor here, four four and a half hour drive, during the period of one full evening. Uh, murdered, tortured, raped, eight student nurses. And that, even to this day, the United States uh, press and the, the United States media labeled that the crime of the century. They considered that the crime of the 20th century. That was three weeks after LAMP. And then three weeks after that, we get Charles Whitman, ex-Marine, great Marine. Uh, on a, he's on a scholarship to the University of Texas for engineering. The, the military is putting him through school. Yeah, a young wife goes on a shooting spree. He is, he climbs to the top of the uh, bell tower at the University of Texas at Austin, and he shoots. He shoots forty six people, killing sixteen. He was also uh, a gun nut. He was into firearms. But so in, in this three, this two month period, we just and that shocked the United States, both the spec killings and the Whitman killings.
0: In the case of most spree, serial, or really just any murderers, their story would end here. After their arrest, trial, and conviction, they would go to jail, and they'd never get back out. Never able to harm anyone ever again. But the story of Matthew Charles Lamb doesn't end with his conviction. It just gets a little weirder, a little crazier, and a lot more unexpected.
1: In part two, Matthew Lamb's conviction and trial take a turn to the unexpected, leaving him in a psychiatric hospital in a time when LSD and methamphetamine were considered a medicine for psychiatric patients. Not only that, Lamb became a therapist himself, a patient therapist.
2: Grade 9 education, 20 years old, he's made a patient therapist put in charge of group sessions of therapy sessions of the most dangerous criminals in the country. Not only that, he's also prescribing medication.
1: This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Cheng. It was produced by Craig Needles and written by Patrick Magermans.
0: The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.